Hello and welcome to episode 51 of the Highland Bridge Builders podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Fagala, and today I'll be teaching. We're going to continue our Old Testament series with a look at the books of poetry and wisdom. So these will be the books from Job to Song of Solomon. A lot of incredible books in here, books like Psalms and Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the other two I've already mentioned. Uh, so obviously too much to be able to possibly cover in 40 minutes, and so we're going to be taking this sort of 30,000 foot view, looking at the themes and the concepts of each book, and trying to connect these five books into something bigger than just the books by themselves. Uh, we'll also be looking at literary styles in the Bible, and we also have a few videos. I will be honest and say that the Bible Project has been an incredible resource for this series and for this section. Highly recommend that you go and look that group up and watch as many videos as you can. They have new videos coming out uh, every other week uh, and actually a video on Psalms that I will be showing this morning that came out just a few days ago. So let's go ahead and jump in right now with a lesson on the books of poetry and wisdom, Job through Song of Psalm. Thanks, David. Okay, so I really enjoyed going through this. I was, I was speaking with David that I feel like I have a pretty good grasp on the New Testament and probably parts of the Old Testament and then there's a lot of the Old Testament that I really I'm not very familiar with and that I, as I'm reading through some of these chapters and some of the themes on these books, I don't know that I've read them since like high school uh, or even really thought about them since high school. So I think it's a great opportunity to sort of reflect on these books. Uh, so many great books in here. Obviously, like in a week, you can't possibly go through everything. Um, I actually have three videos. They're all from the Bible Project. They're all different. I know three videos sounds like a lot. But they're all very different. So I am going to show all those. Um, if you're on the podcast, I'm going to pause so you don't have to listen to like kind of a video in the background. But this first one's going to be on literary styles in the Bible. I think it's important as we go through all these different books of the Bible that we realize the literary styles in all these are, are very different. This is not like the Bible is one like novel written by Dan Brown or something. It's like it's written by like so many different people. I don't know how many authors, somewhere in the 20s, I'm sure, uh, with a lot of different literary styles. So I think this is a good place to start. So let's watch this real quick and then we'll come back to talk. Hopefully that was helpful to kind of get a get an idea of sort of what we're looking at. And so obviously, as you know, we've done the sort of more historical books the last few weeks with uh, Scott. Uh, you know, it's mostly narrative, but of course, in that there's poetry. There's uh, maybe some prose discourse, I guess. Um, I think there's probably styles here as you're watching this that like, well, I like that style, or this is my style. I think for most people, narrative, like they said, is the style that most you know appeals to us. So. Uh, we've got, uh, as it said, narrative. This is storytelling. This is in the Bible mostly for a good reason. This is how most people learn the easiest. Stories are sort of like the oldest form of entertainment, at least one of them. And I think stories are so effective because they, al they allow us to emotionally connect to an idea and also to the teller of that story really quickly. Um, and so you've got history, parables, biographies, like they said. Poetry, though, for me is the one where, you know, it's funny that he said that. He's like, I don't like poetry, and I don't really either. Like, I, I mean, who among us, like, reads poetry on the reg? Like, I don't ever read poetry. Like, and actually, in high school, my mom was an English teacher, so we would do poetry. I never really liked poetry. It's, uh, and it, when I get to the Bible, even those portions of it, just, I don't know, it just seems, like, exhausting. Like, you open up, like, uh, like Song of Songs, and it's just, like, all, like, double line poetry. It's like, ugh, I don't know. So, um, but I think I'm missing something about it. I think they do a good job of kind of explaining sort of why poems are used. And then to realize that one out of every three chapters in the Bible is poetry is, is sort of a crazy thought. 
And so if we're not willing to, to read poetry and get something out of poetry, then we're missing like a third of the Bible, which is crazy. So as I said, songs, wisdom, prophets. So everything that we're going to do today in the next two weeks is going to have some poetry in it. Uh, obviously, poems use metaphor to evoke emotion and imagination. And I like the point they make about how it gets us off of our rut. And so we have a sort of way of thinking, and this is true of all of us, and that is our comfortable place. And so maybe that includes stories or that includes this prose discourse, these logical concepts. But poetry kind of calls us down a different path, which I think is important to think differently and allow yourself to think differently. Um, and then prose discourse. This is David's favorite section. This is, uh, and probably mine too, uh, this is using logic, reason, consistent arguments uh, to, to persuade others. Okay. So uh, let's look a little bit. So when we talk about this as the poetry and wisdom section, I realize that those titles kind of get messed up as we talk about literary styles because poetry is, is kind of wisdom and vice versa. And again, as you're trying to like label these books and section them together, they're very different. So to put you know, Proverbs with Song of Solomon, they don't really exactly go together or even Job. Um, but in a general sense, they're called the poetry and wisdom books. So let's look at what poetry is, and we've already talked a little bit about it. I think it's interesting that the only books in the Old Testament without any poetry, there's only like, what, five? Leviticus, of course, no poetry in Leviticus. Just <laughs> down to business. Uh, Ruth, Esther, so those two books are similar in certain ways, no poetry. And then Haggai and Malachi. So those are the only ones that don't have poetry. Um, Hebrew poetry is a little bit different, and so if you study poetry, maybe some of you, did anyone study poetry like in college? Anyone like a literature major? Where are my literature majors? Okay, I guess they stayed out this morning because they knew I was going to be teaching on literature. Um, but obviously we know poetry because it's mostly, what, rhythm and rhyme. That's how you kind of think of poetry. So like one, two, buckle my shoe. So it's got rhythm, it's got cadence, it has rhyme as well. Uh, of course, with Hebrew poetry, if you've read it, there is no rhyme. Uh, there are some other features in Hebrew poetry that are lost as it's translated into English. Of course, we won't get into all that. Uh, but Hebrew poetry does feature rhythm and also like structure or meter. So typically you'll see like a couplet, two lines together. They either modify each other or they're synonyms of each other. And I'll kind of show you what I mean so that this will make sense. So Psalm 19.1, you're probably familiar with. It's like Russian roulette figuring out which marker will work. Ooh. Um, all right, so let's see. So you may be familiar with this. The heavens declare the glory of God. And this is again uh, Psalm 19.1. And then the second line, if anyone knows it, and the sky above proclaims, my handwriting is awful, his handiwork. Okay, so this is a typical kind of classic, like what you might call a couplet or two lines from a poem. Uh, and what you'll see is, is this is an example of synonymous parallel, parallelism, okay? These two lines are parallel and they're synonymous, okay? So what is synonymous about it? Well, you have in the first part the heavens, all right? And then in the second part you have the sky above. So those two are the same thing. You then also have declare and proclaims. Again, the same thing. And then lastly, the glory of God is the same thing as his handiwork. So why that's important is as you're reading this, it gives you an opportunity to two times in a row to reflect on the same idea, okay? And that's the whole point of this. And so there's different types of poetry you'll see in the Hebrew Bible, but once you kind of get it, you'll start to see these sort of things repeat themselves over and over. So this is synonymous poetic parallelism. There's also antithetical. So what do you think antithetical is? 
Opposites, yeah, there you go. Um, and so the second part would provide the opposite of the first part. So in Proverbs 10, we have, a wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. So as these are the same, those are completely opposite. Okay, so we have synonymous, antithetical, and then we have synthetic, which for lack of a better explanation is just not one of the other two. Okay, so basically it combines all different types of, of poetry and modification and things like that. So, um, so if you run across poetry in the Bible, it's going to be one of those three typically, synonymous, antithetical, or synthetic. I think once you get that, then it makes it a little bit easier to make sense of it. And so you'll see these things like, oh, now I kind of understand what's going on here. And again, what's going on here is, is it's allowing you to, to meditate more deeply on truths. So this verse could be just the heavens declare the glory of God, you know, and maybe that's even too metaphorical because it could just say like God is all powerful. Like that could be a statement. But instead, we get two lines to kind of meditate on that and to find some beauty in it. And again, to get us off of our typical mental paths. Okay. All right. So headed into wisdom. Um, David kind of said this. The wisdom writings are so varied, it's hard to sort of group them into each other. We'll try and do that. I mean, you see even today, Proverbs, you have this sort of instructional or proverbial wisdom. These are like basic instructions on how to live. I think probably most people like Proverbs because it's so practical. I think it applies. You read Proverbs like, oh, that's so true. That was written, you know, 2,500, 3,000 years ago, and it's still true today. I think that's the sort of stuff we like. I think that's probably why when you see those old New Testament Bibles, they tack on Psalm and Proverbs. Like, we, we feel good about those two. There's nothing weird in there. You don't get, like, Song of Solomon, like, you know, as, a, as an addition there, uh, or even Ecclesiastes. They leave that out. Um, but then Job and Ecclesiastes, a little bit more con- contemplative in its wisdom. Um, so it's, it's pondering the more perplexing sides of life. So you might say that Proverbs is sort of like your, your philosophy 101, it's like very easy, very basic. And then by the time you get into Job and Ecclesiastes, it's a little more difficult, a little bit harder to figure out. And then you have the Song of Solomon. This is 301 here. Okay, so this is uh, lyrical wisdom, and it is, you know, it's a song celebrating sex and, you know, one of God's greatest gifts. Nothing wrong with that. Uh, but the wisdom books, what they have in common, so even though they're very different, is uh, a keen interest in the way the world works, humanity's place within it, and how all this operates under God's creative, sovereign care. Okay, and so basic wisdom then can be defined as skill and the art of godly living. Okay, uh, or you could say it's, and this is a mouthful, but that orientation which allows one to live in harmony with God's ordering of the world. Okay, so wisdom is whatever it takes to live in harmony with God's world. Okay, so if you're making good and wise decisions, you live in harmony with the way that God created things. Does that make sense? You live a godly life. And so wisdom literature would be literature that helps you get there, okay? Helps inform how to live that way. All right, so let's, and I have no slides. It's hard for me to not have slides. So you're just getting a blank screen. Just me. Um, Hello, hello. Um, So let's talk about Psalms. We're actually going to go into the books, and it's totally out of order, and I apologize. That is not like me to go out of order, but they're sort of more grouped by theme. So these will be the books of poetry, and so predominantly Psalms, and then the Song of Solomon, which... Again, they're, they're both wisdom and, and poetry books, but go with me. All right, so Psalms. Um, who's read all the Psalms before? Like, who's read through it at some point in your life? Fagel appearance in the back row. Thank you. You both read through it. That's great. Uh, does anyone know how many uh, chapters are in Psalms? 150. All right, so uh, does anyone know the other name for Psalms? The Psalter. David said, like, you know, the Psalter? <laughs> 
course you know. Yeah, the Psalter. Uh, 150 poems that come together is what we call books. It comes from the Greek word psalmos, which is a translation of a Hebrew word, but it means song. Okay, um, And as the name suggests, for hundreds of years and still today, Psalms has been the songbook of the people of God. Okay, So literally, this was the hymn book for the Israelites uh, in their temple worship and things like that. I think it's interesting that there are several different authors. I felt like as I was reading through this, my understanding of these books was still very elementary. Like when I think of Psalms, I think, oh, David wrote it. Well, and he wrote some of it, but not all of it. David wrote, we think about 73 to 75 Psalms. There's a guy named Asaph that wrote 12, the sons of Korah. It sounds like a Hillsong United group or something. I don't know. It just sounds like somebody could be on contemporary radio. Uh, They wrote 11. Solomon wrote two and Moses wrote one. Um, What's interesting about these guys, with the exception of Moses, is they were mostly musical. Okay, so David was skillful in the lyre. He was an accomplished songwriter. The sons of Korah served in the sanctuary, and along with Asaph, they were in charge of the service of the song in the house of the Lord. Now, we don't know like a ton about the nature of worship, like in the temple uh, or, you know, in those sorts of settings, but we do know that these guys were sort of songwriters. Again, this is a songbook, so what would you expect? Uh, So this is like Brishan and uh, his buddies, I guess. So, um, and I would say this too, is that it was written over a long period of time. So I think you see something like Psalms and you think, uh, somebody I probably sat down and wrote this, but this was actually forged over like a thousand years. So we think that the oldest in Psalms was maybe written by Moses, which would have been like 15th century BC. And then you have David and Solomon, which is like 10th century BC, and then all the way down to uh, maybe even post-exilic times, so after the exile, 5th century BC. So I think that's kind of crazy. So I would, I would allow that to like just kind of meditate on that for a second, that these songs have been with us for this long. I mean, from the 15th century BC to now the 21st century AD, that's, that's a long time to have these songs and these truths about God. I think that's pretty awesome, okay? Um, so there is a really great video on this one. So again, we're going on with another video, uh, but I feel like it does a great job of explaining Psalms. And of course, Psalms is so long that how could I ever explain it? So let's go ahead and watch this video. Okay, so that's Psalms. On to the next poetry book, that's mainly poetry, is everyone's favorite. This is what you're waiting on. So the babies keep their ears covered. Um, this is the Song of Solomon. Uh, I won't get into just you know dramatic detail. It's actually a pretty short book. I think it's like ten chapters. Um, and this is interesting. So the Song of Solomon. So who do you think wrote the Song of Solomon? Eric's back there going. Uh, well, I've always thought Solomon. That's what I always just. I feel like it's a pretty pretty like fair guess. And maybe he did, um, but the book is technically the Song of Songs, which is of Solomon, okay? So that's why you'll sometimes see in Bibles, the Bible Project does this, they call it the Song of Songs. Okay, well, that's not the Song of Solomon. Why did you change the name? Um, and so let me get at some of that. And so Song of Songs, it should remind you of some other things that we know from the Hebrew Bible, things like Holy of Holies or King of Kings. And this is a sort of idiom, and the device is to sort of make it like the greatest. Okay, this is like before they had superlative literature, or sorry, uh, superlative uh, uh, grammar. They had uh, Holy of Holies, King of Kings. So uh, Song of Songs means the greatest song or the greatest possible song. And it probably, the of Solomon means in the style of Solomon or in the wisdom literature of Solomon. So probably not written by Solomon. And why they don't think it's written by Solomon is a few things. Uh, first off, and I'll just jump to it, Solomon had 700 wives. Um, and this story is, is very much about one man and one woman who are drawn to each other. So maybe Solomon could have written that, but it seems a little bit hypocritical for him, considering he had 700 wives. But okay, the main voice is actually that of a woman. Now Solomon could have written that in the voice of a woman, sure. Uh, the man's voice, though, isn't Solomon, 
And Solomon is mentioned but never speaks. So is it written by Solomon? Is it not? I would say probably not, honestly. They think that it was actually written after the time of Solomon even. But in the style of Solomon, who sort of kicked off all this wisdom literature for Israel. Uh, all right, so what happens in this book? I'm going to quickly sort of summarize it. If you've never read the Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon, give it a shot. Uh, but there's two lovers, and the two lovers are introduced. They're likely betrothed or maybe even married. Uh, they declare the love for each other, um, and then they express the meaning behind the allegories and imagery. Okay, so there's a lot of imagery in the Song of Solomon. There's things about uh, a woman's lips looking like uh, deer's antlers. I made that one up. There's just weird stuff. I'll just say that. And it's not meant to be literal. Okay. There is a series of like seeking and finding. And so like one will hide and the other will seek and then find. And so the, the two lovers are constantly searching for one another. And then they reunite in song, almost like a musical or something. Um, and then there is uh, this idea that sexual desire is a gift. So this is kind of the big point of Song of Songs is that sex is a gift from God. Um, and it was a gift purely until sin corrupted it. So we know in the garden that sin is what corrupted our nudity and sex and things like that. Um, and so we've sort of ruined that. But these two lovers use it in its correct application. That's the point of this book. Um, there's also a section on right timing. And so these two lovers are immensely captivated with one another, truly in love with one another. But the woman, of course it's the woman, right, Bill? It's got to be the woman. She methodically reminds the readers to wait for the special passion at the right time. Isn't it often the woman? Okay. All right. And then symbolic love. I think this is the big takeaway. Well, I don't know. I think it usually is. Um, women are so wise. Uh, so this is the big takeaway. Is that much like the two lovers, God's love for his people is powerful and unending. So if you get nothing else from the book, if, if the sex part makes you uncomfortable, then know that God loves us powerfully and in a way that never ends or never ceases. So there's three ways to interpret this book, and I think this is where it gets interesting, is like, why do we have this book? You know, famously in the Jewish culture, it was like, I think, PG-30 or something. I think it'd be like 30 to read it. I don't know if that's true or not, but I'd heard that once, um, so I'm just going to go with it. Um, but in the Jewish tradition, they think of it as an allegory for, for what? Israel and God, okay? And so they think, well, this, this love poem, it's really just, it's a love poem that's a metaphor for how God views Israel Okay, and then vice versa. Now, what would Christians do with it? And based somewhat on Paul's interpretation of it is, it's an allegory for the church in Christ. Okay, so similar, but a little bit different. Uh, what a lot of uh, you know, uh, scholars think is it's just a collection of ancient poetry. Uh, but this poetry, it reflects the uh, divine gift of love. So what do I think it is? I have no idea. Eric, what do you think it is? He doesn't want to answer. Bill, what do you think it is? Intimacy. Intimacy? Okay, well, that's true. Um, and so what it's ultimately about, though, and I'll just read this because it's good, is it holds out hope that even though our relationships are so often distorted by selfishness, love is a transcendent gift that points to something greater, the gift of God's love that will one day permeate and transform his beloved world. Okay, so I'll take that. So whatever it is and isn't, that sounds good. All right, so let's get into books of wisdom. So we've done books of poetry, psalms, song of songs, now we're going to move into the books of wisdom, and I'm going to show one more video here in a second. But I like the way that it groups these three remaining books. And so we have, I'll just do one letter, and they'll show it here too. Oh, I got lucky again. Well, sort of lucky. What you'll see is we have Proverbs, we have Ecclesiastes, and we have Job. And what I like about the way that the Bible Project groups these, again, out of chronological order, whatever you want to call it, um, 
is, is that Proverbs, and I sort of said this, is sort of like 101 philosophy. It's sort of like a basic way of understanding the way the world works and how to live a good life. What you'll see in Ecclesiastes is it's sort of the contrasting opinion to that. Is that, okay, well, you can do all these things and life can still be miserable. You can still suffer. And so as a critic, as someone that it comes natural to to be a, a critic of something, I, I most identify with Ecclesiastes because I feel like it feels the most honest. And then Job is kind of both. In Job, you have a really great guy that terrible things happen to, and then magically at the end, things are good again. But is it because he did anything right, or is it just because that's how it happened? Okay? And so I think in the three of these, you sort of take on almost like different ages. Like Proverbs is kind of like as an 18 to 20-year-old, like the way that you think about the world. Ecclesiastes is maybe when life has beat you down, you're 40 and 50, and then maybe Job is when you're like 60, 70, 80. You talk to someone who's really wise, who's really old, who's lived through both good and bad, and it's kind of come out on the end of it to sort of say, well, I don't exactly know why life is that way, but I know what I should do as I live. You know, I know that I should worship God and honor God. All right, so let's talk about Proverbs, the first of these books of wisdom. Um, so who wrote and collected Proverbs? Does anyone know? David's my front row. David's my teacher's pet up here. David's always got the answers. Get someone other than David answer, please. It's Solomon, go for it, yeah. So as far as we know, King Solomon. All right, so he did get this one book. He got this one in. Uh, Solomon reigned over Israel from about 971 to 931 B.C., so that's 40 years. If you know anything about the history of Israel, this was a good time for Israel. This is when the temple was built. They were at peace. Um, Solomon is the one that really ushered in this wisdom literature period for Israel. He was known as the wisest king, uh, you know, wiser than that of, you know, Persia and Egypt and all these other, like, amazing civilizations. Um, and so it says that in, in 1 Kings 4, uh, his wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the East and the wisdom of Egypt. He spoke 3,000 proverbs and his songs were 1,005. Okay, so obviously a real uh, prolific guy. Um, he also had 700 wives, but anyway. All right, so uh, the goal of Proverbs, pretty easy. All right, it's to instill wisdom in God's people. Now, I think the core of this book and these other wisdom books is, is that that wisdom is founded in the fear of the Lord. Okay, I think we were talking about Islam uh, a couple weeks ago in, in our Bible study. And one thing that I respect about Islam, and, and Alan, it was your lesson, so actually Alan talked about it, um, is they, they have a fear of the Lord that goes way beyond our fear of the Lord. Maybe even an unhealthy fear of the Lord. Like, they really fear the guy. They don't even know if they do everything that he tells them to do, if he would have mercy on them. They don't know. But it's not up to them to know. Okay? Um, but we've sort of lost that fear of the Lord. Okay? But um, I think that a true wisdom in life should be grounded in that fear of the Lord and an acceptance that he's sovereign, that he created all this, that he ordered all this, that our goal in life is to glorify him. I think we lose that. I think a lot of wisdom that we think of as wisdom has nothing to do with God and certainly not with a fear of God. If anything, it has a fear of us not being as successful or as important as we'd like for ourselves to be. Um, certainly not a fear of, the, of God. So Proverbs, if you've read Proverbs, you know it, it covers like anything and everything. The main things it covers, it, in case you're like wanting to read it, diligence and laziness, friendship, speech, marriage, child rearing, domestic peace, work, getting along to good manners, eternity, and what Proverbs shows is that godliness is of value in every way as it holds promises for the present life and also for the life to come. Okay, so again, living the godly life. That's what wisdom is. Okay, living in harmony with the way that God has created things. I'm going to show this video, and then we've got a couple more things to wrap. All right, so Ecclesiastes, we're going to do this in Job and then wrap. Um, 
So thanks for staying with me. I just feel like those videos were too good to not show. I think they're awesome. So, um, so that was uh, Proverbs. Ecclesiastes, written maybe by Solomon. That's sort of what I was grown up to be told, and some scholars think maybe someone different. Either way, uh, it does act as sort of the critic's response to Proverbs. It's the, the critical view on life. A couple interesting things about Proverbs. If you've read Proverbs, there's a couple of little phrases that are said all the time. Um, one of those is that life is meaningless, okay? Um, that word, though, is one of these Hebrew words that's lost on us. And I was telling David this last night. If there's anything I really don't grasp about the Bible, it is the original language. And I don't know how I can go back and learn that. I guess I need to go to school. But there's so much, like when you learn that a word means something completely different than the word you've read it as, you're sort of like, you feel cheated. It's like, well, why didn't you translate it correctly or whatever you want to say? But the word for meaningless is this hevel, uh, which is, and I'm probably saying it incorrectly, but it's a temporary and fleeting uh, smoke or vapor. So when it says that life is meaningless, it's actually life is hevel, which means like a, a fog that's uncontrollable. Well, that's a totally different thing than life is meaningless. Um, and so it gets at even more depth. And I think what I think of is, is that in life, we're trying to control the fog. We're trying to move the fog around to make our lives one thing or another. And that is meaningless. Like, what a silly thing to try and do, to try and, you know, well, let's shutter this, you know, this fog over this direction so I can go this way. I mean, that, that is the point that's being made, but it's such a deeper meaning than life is meaningless, which is true. Uh, but I think for a lot of us, you know, we, we spend a lifetime trying to control our lives and to shape it into something that, let's be honest, is not going to be possible. And we can grasp onto things like the Proverbs, really practical things like TED Talks or motivational books or maybe even certain ways of praying. We, we sort of think we can control God by praying a certain way. Um, and this is just an idolatry of the self. Um, and I think it presents in different ways, but I, I think it's meaningless to try and do that. I think it's all from pride in ourselves, really. Um, there's th three things that are true of life that I like that comes out of Ecclesiastes. And, and these, again, this is Ecclesiastes, again, it's like the guy of his middle of his life is like, look, kid, I got to tell you some things. And he says, time marches on, we all die, and life is random. That's not very fun. Uh, Eric taught on nihilism a few weeks ago, and that's kind of, like, it kind of has that feeling. Like, this is the conclusion of a life that doesn't include God, is time marches on, we all die, life is random. Ooh, that sounds fun. Not super motivational. Um, but the conclusion of this is not just that. So he's really negative the whole time, and he's making statements that are true, that are logical. And then the last, very last part of Ecclesiastes, he concludes that, well, okay, the key to contentment comes from wisdom, accepting hevel, or the meaninglessness or the randomness of life, fearing God and keeping his commandments and putting our trust in, them, in him. So we may be puzzled by life's mysteries, but one day God will bring true justice, and that should be enough to uh, motivate us to live honestly and with integrity. All right, so Job. Job is like one of the more popular books from the Old Testament. We all know the story of Job. We all know that Job was really rich, had a beautiful wife, and it was all taken away because Satan made this wager with God. Kind of a weird story, okay? Probably it takes place during the time of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, Job was not an Israelite. He lived in Uz, okay? He was outside of Israel. Quickly, what happens is that God tests Job, Job accuses God, Job questions God. God then comes to Job, and he doesn't really answer Job's questions, which is interesting. He just gives him a quick virtual tour. <clears throat> it's almost like bringing someone to your house and be like, well, here's the bedroom, and here's our kitchen. But for God, it's here are the things I've done, and here are these two beasts that I've created that are bigger than anything you could ever comprehend. And here is what I have to deal with and what I have to think through. And really, when I look at you, Job, it's just not a lot for me to be concerned with. And then he kind of leaves. That's basically the, how that, that goes. 
But in this, Job learns trust. And Job is faithful. Job is steadfast throughout the entire time. Um, but what's interesting is, is that I was always taught that at the end of this, because Job had done the right thing, that then he got great things. And sure enough, his ending is good. He gets what? Twice as many uh, possessions as he had before. He gets an even more beautiful wife, we're, we're to surmise, because his kids are the most beautiful in the land. I feel bad for the kids that died, because apparently like, they weren't the most beautiful in the land, but these new ones, they were. Um, but what I think I missed, and, and they make this point, is, is that it's not ever said that God did this as a way of being just, or that it was his you know, just desserts, that, well, Job, you did your job, and so now here you get this. It doesn't say that. What it says is that God decided that it was a wise thing, and so he, he gave this to Job. But it wasn't because, in the same way that Job wasn't punished because he was bad, in fact, he was very good, he wasn't rewarded because he was good. And so again, it kind of plays into this hand. A little bit more tempered version of what Ecclesiastes would say is, is that things are random. Bad things are going to happen to good people. Good things will happen to bad people. Ultimately, through wisdom, we can more guarantee a good life, but not necessarily. And that ultimately it's about having fear in the Lord and having trust in Him is what will prevail and what's important. Um, so in conclusion, I would say of suffering, suffering is something that none of us want, but it is the one human emotion that it, it, it brings out in us a reflection on the deeper things in life. So without any suffering, would we ever think about things that are really meaningful and important? And the answer is no. And I think that's why as we're more distracted as a culture than ever before, we don't think about deep and meaningful things. And I think it's really robbing us of a lot. We don't contemplate. We don't examine our lives at all, most of us. Uh, but from Job, we learn these three things. Again, and of suffering, we see now in part, it's just a fragment. And this is what God says to Job. You have no idea what you're talking about. You know, I understand everything. You understand so little in this land of us that otherwise is completely useless now to any of us now. You live there, you have this life, and it's great, but it means so little compared to everything I have to deal with. Uh, you need to trust and obey. And so even when life is difficult, we have to trust in God, and we have to obey God. Jesus' death gives, gives us hope. Even in Job 19, there's this beautiful verse where he says, I know that my Redeemer lives, and that in the end he will stand on the earth. So this is Job in, in Job 19. This beautiful lyric that we have from songs, you know, I know that my Redeemer lives. Right there in Job, as he's you know, covered in boils and he's dealing with this you know, great torment and having lost everyone. And he says, I know that my Redeemer lives. And I think it's in those places where you're really suffering that you sort of look to God and you say, you know what, God, I, I, I don't understand this, but I know that you live. And that's our hope. That's our firm foundation. And so unlike other religions, other worldviews where, you know, if you're Muslim, maybe God will be merciful on me, maybe he won't. We don't have to wonder. We, we have that assurance. Okay, We have that firm foundation. We know that our Redeemer lives, and we know that there's hope for tomorrow. So anyway, I hope that is helpful to you. That's a lot to do in one week. Uh, we'll be back next week. Peter's got uh, major profits. Major profits. That's a very, very easy thing to do, too. So anyway, so thanks. I'm going to wrap this up real quick with a prayer, and we'll, we'll dismiss. Okay, so those are the books of poetry and wisdom, the books of... Job to Song of Solomon. Again, I did those out of order for a certain reason. Um, you probably noticed that there were three times where the video or the, the podcast, I should say, stopped and then restarted. That's when I was showing some videos. So I did show three separate videos from the Bible Project. They can all be found for free either on thebibleproject.com or on YouTube. I really do recommend, I know it's unlikely as you're listening to this maybe in a car in your home or as you're working out, that you're going to go and look those videos up, but I really, really do recommend that you do it. The first was on literary styles in the Bible. The second was on the book of Psalms. There's actually two videos they've done on Psalms, 
One is called Read Scripture, and that's where they go into great depth in terms of the, the structure of the book itself. Um, but there's a, a new video that, they did that just came out this year that is more uh, focused on the poetry or the stylings or the themes of Psalms. And that's the video that I showed. Uh, both are great. And then the second, or the, sorry, the last video was on Proverbs. And this is, again, from their newer series where they're looking at sort of the literary structure, the themes of the book of Proverbs. There's also a lot of great books, or sorry, videos on uh, every other book, to be very frank. Um, Certainly those three of the wisdom of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job, each of those videos are really amazing, super well animated, and and it's just great storytelling. So just spend an afternoon watching uh, those videos. I think you'll get so much more out of this just as I did. Of course, I thought three videos was too many to show, and and I couldn't show five or six or seven. Um, But uh, anyway, go look those up. I didn't want to leave them on the podcast, uh, just sort of in view of the fidelity issues that would be there. Okay, so next week we'll be back. Uh, Peter Snell is going to be teaching on, I believe, the major prophets, and then the week after that it'll be the minor prophets. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed this. I hope that you got something out of this. Um, There's so much that I've taken away from studying these books, and I'm just so motivated to go back and to read, or maybe even to listen. I like the audio Bible, to listen to these books. And I hope that you will do the same. Um, So that's all we have uh, for this week of the Highland Bridge Builders podcast. I do appreciate you for tuning in. If you're in the Memphis area, Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. here at Highland Church of Christ uh, in Cordova, we would love for you to join us. We'd love for you to come and spend some time with us. You can find me, Kyle Fagala, on Facebook. You can send me a message if you need help finding the church. We'd really invite you to come in. Of course, if you're someone that missed class because you're on vacation, how's it going? Hope the vacation was good, and we'll see you next week. All right, so that's all we got. God bless you guys. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye.